Well, good morning, you guys. And I'm glad you guys are here. I'm glad to be here. Every time I get up here after being, uh, being able to sit out there during good worship, it's, there's just something special about good worship. I hope you guys um, uh, feel the same way that I do, that we're really blessed to have such good worship around here. How cool is it that when Pastor Winston is off, that Pastor Tim can slide over and it's still amazing worship, right? What a, what a blessing. Um, I want to I wanna get us started today um, by, by telling you that we're just doing a one-off. Normally, we, we try to do some series. Um, we're, we're just going to do a, a one-off message today, and I'm, I'm calling it The Bad Guy. How many of you guys like movies with bad guys in it? I think, to be honest, I, I've got three teenage boys in my house, and it feels like the only movies we watch are movies with bad guys in it. In fact, if Marvel didn't make it, we probably aren't watching a movie right now. Right? But, but what is it about movies that have a bad guy that's so compelling? Like There, there is something compelling ab- about a villain, Right about about having an evil character in a in a storyline, and 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 it's not just movies. I mean, good books, good literature, all throughout history had bad guys. There was always a a villain. There was always some um, antagonist in a story, and and. It, it finds its way even into like our, our children's stuff, right? Like think about Disney. Think about can you think of any Disney movie that doesn't have a villain, right? Because kids even know like there's something fun about fighting against the evil, right? There's something interesting about watching a movie when, when you know what the, the bad guy is all about, right? And I remember as a kid, um, w- my parents took me to Las Vegas. And, and as a kid, if you go to Las Vegas, there's basically like one building you're safe in. Like the rest of Las Vegas is like dangerous territory for children, right? But the Excalibur Hotel on the Strip that is for kids, man. It was, it was awesome. It was set up like, like a castle. And the whole thing had like a castle theme, and it was a lot of fun for me as a kid. And I remember one of the most fun parts of it is that underneath, in the basement, they've got an arena down there with like a dirt floor and the stadium seating all around it. And, and it was the Knights of King Arthur's Court. And it was the show and it was awesome because, I mean, they would actually ride out with, like, giant, like, the full-size horses, not like the, the, the ponies and the little horses, like the biggest, coolest horses, right? And they'd come riding out with their shields and their armor, and there was all of this um, fighting that was going on. And it was cool because when, when you're sitting in that arena, your section is the, the country that you're supposed to root for, right? You're assigned a, a, a person who's out there. And when they come out, it's cool. Like, it, it's fun to root for your guy, but the best part was when the bad guy showed up. Like the lights change and the fireworks go off and it's like the evil guy arrives. There's something compelling about the bad guy. And here's what I think it is. I think that without conflict, a story is boring. And we need villains to to create that conflict with our heroes so that we have something to root for. Right? It's, it's, it gives us something to root against, and then we're all on the same page about what we're rooting for. We need to be able to, to identify the evil and the problem in the story. And so a villain helps us identify that evil. It helps us know what we're all against. But there's something in us that wants to see them stopped, 
isn't there? There's something in us that when there's evil, when there's a bad guy, we want to see them get what they deserve. That's why we'll watch to the end of a movie and we know how Hollywood works, right? The bad guy's going to lose. And yet we want to see it happen. We want, we want to root against him until the end. We want to see the bad guy get what he deserves. Today we're going to talk about a bad guy. In fact, some people think that he might be the ultimate bad guy in all of human history, the ultimate villain. We're going to talk about a guy named Judas. How many of you guys named your, your son Judas? I asked that question last night, and then my heart started beating because I was like, man, if somebody raises their hand, that is going to be so awkward. But nobody ever does, right? Nobody names their kid Judas. Didn't any of you name your dog Judas? No, we, we wouldn't even name our dog Judas because his name is synonymous with being the villain. He's the bad guy. He ruined that name for all of history, right? We're going to talk about Judas. And a lot of you guys know the story. Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus. It's a familiar story, and yet I think we're going to see something as we look at it that, that is new and, and compelling for us in our lives. But before we do, I want to give you guys a little bit of background. We're, we're going to be in Matthew 26, and so if you have a paper Bible and you want to start turning there, you can. Before we get there, I want to, I want to set the stage for you. See, Jesus had kind of built this group of, of disciples around him. And, and I think of his disciples kind of like, um, like a Boy Scout troop. Like I was, I was in Boy Scouts just long enough to realize that we pretend like we go to the meetings and we learn how to do the knots and we do all that stuff so that we can go camping. That's what Boy Scouts really is about. It's about a bunch of guys who get a, an opportunity to go out and go camping. And I think of his disciples kind of like Jesus' Boy Scout troop. Like there's just this group of 12 guys that just follow Jesus around and wherever he goes in the wilderness or in town, it's just like an adventure everywhere. And see, for three years, this group followed Jesus around the countryside. And at the beginning, they weren't quite sure what they were getting into. They just, they knew it was interesting. They knew it was different than their life, right? And so for three years, they're following him around, but what they experienced is miracles, and Jesus does incredible things. And I don't mean miracles like you, you wonder, um, is, is God doing something in here today? I, I think that's a miracle. No, like, like this, this kid shows up with like a lunch, like a Lunchable, right? And then an entire hillside of people get fed from this one Lunchable, right? A miracle. Or Jesus walks on water. Think about that for a second. Imagine if you were one of the disciples on the boat, scared and terrified of this storm, and Jesus just comes walking out on the water. And then he goes, hey, Peter, come here. And Peter gets out of the boat. Miracles. And you see, where we're going to catch up to this story, things are about to go down. And the reason is that while Jesus may have started as a nobody, nobody really knew who he was. Nobody, nobody knew what was coming with Jesus. After three years, Jesus is famous now. Everybody knows about Jesus. And, and they're coming to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem's the, the capital city, and, and it's kind of it's the, it's the political center of the area, but it's also the religious center of the area. But they're not just coming to this big city. They're coming at Passover. And there's a, there's a, a historian, his name is Josephus. He said that at Passover, during Jesus' time, the city of Jerusalem would swell to over 2 million people. But it wasn't a city built for two million people. 
And so there were people like crammed into extra bedrooms and there were tents lining the streets, right? And, and there were all the hillsides around town had people in them. All the neighboring towns were overflowing. It was crazy. There was so much energy. And Jesus is famous and he's showing up to this environment. He's coming to town at Passover. And before he gets to town, before he gets to Jerusalem, he raises a guy from the dead. His name's Lazarus. And, and Lazarus, you've got to understand, has been dead for days, to the point that the Bible said, if you read the King James, it says that he stinketh. Like, he, he smelled bad. He was that dead, right? And, and Jesus, with his words, just walks up to the grave and says, Lazarus, come out! And he walks out of the grave. And everybody hears about it. The excitement around Jesus coming to Jerusalem. I think everybody at this point is like, this is, this is it. This is the time. Jesus is here. The king is here. In fact, when he rides into town on Palm Sunday, this day in that year, they were laying down palm branches on the road and yelling, Hosanna, our king is here. That's the scene that we are going to pick up this story in. And in Matthew 26, it starts like this. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he's talking to his disciples. He said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. See, what Matthew's doing here is he's, he's giving you two different scenes because there are, there are two different storylines that are about to converge in just a moment. He's going to tell us how they, how they collide. And so in scene one, he's got this, this moment where Jesus is talking to his disciples. And did you see what he said? He said, as you know, the Passover is two days away. And they're like, you think? Look around, right? Of, co of course it is. And he goes, yeah, you know that, right? Well, did you know that they're going to hand me over to be crucified? How much more clear could Jesus be in that moment, right? And, and you know what's weird? There's several times where you read it and you feel like he's so clear and yet the disciples never seem to understand that Jesus was going to die. They never seem to get it, right? This couldn't be more clear. He says, I'm going to be handed over to be crucified. That's one scene. And at that same moment, the leaders, the, the, the religious and political leaders of the city, they were so upset that Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead and that he was coming into town with so much fame and, and so much interest in the people. He was going to cause a problem with Rome. They needed to kill him. But they decide, you know what, we've got to do this we can't do it during the festival. We can't do it during the daylight. People will see it. People will know, and they'll riot. So those are the two scenes. Now, if we keep reading in this story in Matthew, the next scene um, is where Jesus is anointed. And I'm going to tell it to you instead of reading it to you. And the reason is that we, we get some other details from some of the other gospels that I want to include in the story, okay? So Jesus couldn't stay in Jerusalem at night. There was just no room. There was no, there was no place for him. And so he'd go into Jerusalem, him and his guys, they'd go into Jerusalem during the day. 
And then at night, they'd go out to this suburb called Bethany, and they would stay at their friend's house, Lazarus's house. And so he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And his sister, Martha, was there. And his other sister, Mary, was there. And man, are they thankful. That whole family is so grateful for Jesus. And so Mary goes in the back and she finds this this jar of perfume. And instead of getting out just a little bit of it and making the room smell a little bit better, she, she breaks it and she pours it out on Jesus, all of it. It's like this obscene gesture of of gratitude. Like she couldn't find a way to be more thankful than to break this this perfume and and, and pour it all over him. And you got to understand, perfume in the day had had oil in it. And it it was beautiful smelling, but it was expensive. And what happens is, there's a complaint among the disciples. She does this, and, and everybody sitting there is like, what? What a waste! Why in the world would you waste that? Because we find out that it was worth like a year's wages. She took like a year's worth of savings and then just wasted it on Jesus. Well, we actually learn in John's gospel that the person who complained was Judas. Judas was the one who carried the money bag for the group. He was the treasurer of the the troop. And it says that he, he said, um, we could have used that for the poor. We could have given it to the widows. We could have done ministry stuff with this. But really, he wasn't interested in the ministry stuff. He was interested in the coin bag because he would help himself to it. He was a thief. And then all the other disciples, they join in and they're like, what, that was a bad idea. Like, what a waste. What a horrible idea. And Jesus pipes up. And the way that he rebukes them, the way that he pushes back against their complaint is that he says, you guys, you may not understand it, but she was preparing me for my burial. See, when somebody died and you you would entomb them, you would do some preparations for them, and and part of it was, was anointing them with fragrant smells. She's anointing me for my burial. Again, he's so clear. Except this time, I think Judas got it. Up until now, all of them, they, they couldn't ever seem to understand what's he saying when he's talking about his death. I think that Judas actually gets it at this point. I think Judas ha- had had enough because he gets up, it says, and, and he goes on, and we're going to read about what he does after, after leaving this moment. But I imagine that he goes, that wasn't part of the deal. When I signed on for this, when I joined your little troop, I didn't, I didn't think that you were going to die at the end of this, right? I remember when you said, and, and we would read it in, in Luke 4, you said, Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and the recovery of sight to the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I think Judas is going, you're supposed to be the Messiah, and the Messiah is supposed to bring the kingdom back to Israel. You're supposed to restore us. You're supposed to kick Rome out. You're supposed to solve all of our problems. When I signed up for this, that's what I was signing up for. And I think he finally gets it. Jesus is like, she's preparing me for my burial. And and Judas is like, wait, what? You're going to die? That's not what I signed up for. And then we pick up the story again in Matthew 26, verse 14. 
Then, immediately afterwards, then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver, and from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Judas had had enough. And did you notice what didn't happen here? It wasn't that the religious leaders came to the disciples and were like, hey, who wants to betray him? Judas went to them. And he said, what are you willing to give me if I betray him? Is there any other way that I can get what I want? Is there any other uh, better way than, than following Jesus to get what I want? Because when I signed up for this, I, I thought we were going somewhere, and that's not happening. What can I get out of this? Is, is there anything else on the table? And at this point, the plan is in motion. And then verse 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, that's Passover, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And he replied, go to the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. So what's cool is in John's gospel, this meal, this time that they spend in this, we, we call it the upper room discourse. In John's gospel, it takes up like five chapters. Five chapters of the book of John happen in this one evening. And you want to know the very first thing that happens when they get to this Passover meal? The very first thing. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. In one line in, in, in John's gospel, it, it says that Judas had already made plans to betray him. And the very next sentence says that Jesus got up, stripped down, and grabbed a towel and started washing feet. All 12 sets of feet. Think about that for a minute. Jesus, God in the flesh. He knows what's about to happen. He knows what Judas is up to, right? And yet he washes Judas's feet. I want you to slow that scene down for a minute. If this was a movie, I want you to imagine the, the, the excitement in the room and Peter's like complaining and he's like, I don't know if you should be washing my feet. You're too important. And Jesus says, if I don't do it, you're not in. And he says, well then wash me. Right? And there's all the, the guys are all like kicking off their sandals. They're like, I don't know what's going on. And they're getting ready for Jesus and they're lining up. And the music stops and the talking stops. And Jesus gets to Judas. Imagine that moment for a minute. I imagine that as Jesus is washing his feet, he's making eye contact with Judas. Imagine what's going through Jesus' mind in that moment. Love. He loves Judas. He's been pouring himself out to Judas and the other guys for three years. He loves the guy. And sadness at the same time, knowing what Judas has already started to do. Commitment. Commitment to, to Judas and to the disciples, but also to the process. He knows what he's going to have to do, but pain that the process had to involve Judas to do it. 
And yet he still washes his dirty, sore feet. Now, imagine what's going on in Judas' mind in that moment. Think about that for a second. Have, have you ever had to hurt someone or felt like you had to hurt someone? But that moment between when you resolve to do it and when it actually happens is torture, isn't it? Right? Like, um, have you ever had to break up with somebody? And at some point you've decided, like, okay, this relationship has to end. But between when, when you decided to do it and when you get to do it, like you have to go out to dinner with their parents or something, and it's just, oh, it's just torture. It's eating you up inside because you know what you're going to do, right? Or, or quitting a job with a boss that you really like, and you know it's going to hurt the company. It's going to hurt your boss, but you've got to do it. And you've decided, you re- resolve to do it, but before you get there, man, that's torture, or sometimes it's worse, right? Sometimes it's, it's not good things. It's things like cheating or, or a dirty business deal, right? Once you've set your mind to it, but before you get to do it, what a, what a tense time. And to have Jesus stop what he's doing at the Passover dinner and get on his knees and wash Judas's feet. Now we go from washing feet to eating dinner, and we pick it back up in Matthew 26. Verse 20, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. It's one of you guys that's eating with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him had he not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, You've said so. Jesus knows. He knew the whole time. But now Judas knows that Jesus knows. And so he leaves. He gets up from the table. He gets up from dinner and he goes. And in John's gospel, Jesus actually says, go do what you are going to do. Right? He, He releases him to go do it. Now, what's crazy is Jesus spends the rest of this evening after that. Think about that. That's that's how this evening started. And the rest of this evening, he spends teaching the other eleven some incredible things. Things that that we as a church and the church, the big C church, have clung to for years and years. Things like what Passover actually meant. And we get the Last Supper. We get communion from this conversation. We get his teaching on the vine and the branches where he says, if you remain in me, then God's work will be evident in you. He talks about the Holy Spirit. He talks about the comfort that they're going to need when he's gone. And the party moves from this room to a garden called Gethsemane. See, late in the middle of the night when the dinner was over and they had probably overstayed their welcome. Remember, they just told this guy like, hey, we're eating at your house. And it's like midnight. You know that point in the party when the host, you're the host, and you're like, go, (laughs) right? (laughs) You don't want to say it, but you're like, you're you're just getting closer to the door for them until eventually they, they join you and they leave, right? So, they leave, they leave this guy's house. Where are they going to go? They, they don't have a home, right? And so, so they go to this garden called Gethsemane. 
And what I want you to understand is this was 2,000 years ago. They didn't have electricity. And they were outside the city on the Mount of Olives in a garden. There was no house around. And so it was pitch black. And it was silent. Middle of the night. And Jesus is in anguish. This is the scene where he prays, Lord, if, if you could have this cup pass me. And then he stops and he says, no, your will, not my will, be done. And, and in his prayer, in his anguish about what's about to happen, he's praying so hard that um, drops of blood are coming out where sweat should be coming out. And then the betrayer arrives. The bad guy, Judas, shows up. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. So here's the scene. They got what they wanted, right? Remember, we can't do this in town during the festival. They're out of town. We can't do this during the daylight. People will know it's at night. There's less disciples around that are going to fight back. There's no, there's no crowd that's going to riot, but we have a problem. How would they know which one is Jesus? It's pitch black. And this was 2,000 years ago, right? So there was no print media. It wasn't like there were wanted posters all over town with Jesus' likeness on it. And nobody could get out their smartphone and be like, that's the guy. They had no idea, right? Unless he was doing Jesus' things in the temple, how would they know? And for that matter, his, his band of, of guys, they, they had so much um, allegiance to him that any one of them could have just stepped up and said, I'm Jesus and taken the fall. How would we know? And so Judas sets up this sign. He says, I'll tell you how to know which guy is which. The one that I kiss. Now, in Luke's gospel, I want to read you something. The exact same moment. In Luke 22, verse 47. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? I want you to feel this for a moment. The last time that they made eye contact was when Judas said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus goes, I do mean you, Judas. And right before that, it was Jesus at, at his feet, washing his feet, loving on him. And I imagine in this moment, Judas comes up to betray him and Jesus makes eye contact with him. See, Jesus knew this was coming, but he says, Judas, are you doing this with a kiss? That's how you're going to betray me? With a With a kiss? That's how you're going to do it. And this sets in motion the death of Jesus Christ. In the hours that would follow this moment, between, this was midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning, between now and 3 p.m., like 14 or 15 hours, Jesus would go through three different trials. They would offer to release him as long as they could keep Barabbas in chains, this horrible criminal, and yet the crowd says, no, we'd rather have Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. And then he's beaten, and a crown of thorns is pushed down on his head, and he's crucified on a Roman cross, and he dies. Betrayed by a friend. 
with a kiss. How evil is that? How wicked is that betrayal, right? And, and some theologians and pastors would say that Judas was the most wicked, most evil man that ever lived because of this moment. And it did end with evil, didn't it? But you realize that's not how it started? You know, Judas was called by Jesus just like Peter was, just like John was. Jesus looked out at all of the people that he could have interacted with, and he saw Judas, and he said, Judas, would you follow me? And he did. Think about that for a minute. Judas left everything. Did he have a wife? Did he have kids? Did he have a career? He left it all to follow Jesus. And for three years, he follows him around. And he, and he sees incredible things along the way. He sees Jesus do this miracle of the feeding the 5,000. But you want to know what's cool about that story? The disciples are the ones who actually got to take the bread and pass it out. And take the fish and pass it out. And there's a point when every disciple is coming back at the end of the meal. And each one of them's got a basket full. And Judas had a basket full of the food that God or that Jesus had multiplied. He experienced these miracles. He watched him call Peter out of the boat. Like literally, Peter's here and, and he has to step over Judas to get out of the boat to walk on water. And there's even a point when Jesus sends his disciples out two by two to preach the gospel and he empowers them to do miracles while they're out there. And so Judas and one of his buddies has, has left camp and he's out there proclaiming the kingdom of God with power. He's doing miracles. It ended with evil, but that's not how it started. How did he get there? How did Judas get there from, from leaving everything to betraying the Son of God? See, Judas expected that Jesus was going to set up a kingdom right here, right now. Right? He expected that the Messiah was going to kick out Rome, that, that there was going to be this, this peace in the land, and that it was going to have God's backing behind their uh, superpower status in the world. Judas had an agenda. Right? He had some expectations, like, I'm going to get in on the ground floor of this thing. Right? Like, right at the beginning, if I could get close to Jesus, if, if I could be involved in this, then when that happens, I, I could be important. I could, have, uh, I could have status. My life could mean something. But they all had that same expectation, didn't they? Didn't James and John had to send their mom to talk to Jesus, right? Because they weren't even brave enough. And, and James and John's mom shows up and she's like, uh, Jesus, um, when, when you sit on your throne in your kingdom, could John be on one hand and James be on the other hand? Right? They're thinking like, we want to be important. Every one of them did. Right? In fact, several times Jesus had to stop what he was teaching and tell them to stop it. Right? Like, have you ever been, you've been the dad or the mom in the car that's like, I will turn this car around, right? And sometimes I think Jesus is like, we're going somewhere, and you guys are fighting in the back seat over dumb stuff. They all had the same expectation, the same agenda. Why, why Judas? I think the key is back in the conversation that they had at the Last Supper. And so I'm going to read something we already read. I'm going to read it to you one more time. In Matthew 26, Jesus said this, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. 
They were very sad and began to say to him one after another, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. One word different. The other 11, one at a time, Nathaniel, Peter, John, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. And it gets to Judas, the exact same question, Almost. Surely you don't mean me, teacher, leader, rabbi. See, it started the same for all of them. Jesus called all of them the same way. They all left their life to follow him the same way. And throughout the story, they all thought Jesus was going to set up a kingdom, and they were all jockeying for position. They all had an agenda. But at some point, each of the rest of them realized that Jesus was Lord. At some point, for the other 11, it clicked. He is Lord. And that meant that even though they had agendas and they had expectations, they were willing to lay them down because he's the master, because his agenda matters more. Because lordship is about allegiance. And for the others, Eventually, they got to the point where their allegiance was to Jesus himself. And for Judas, his allegiance was to an outcome he expected he'd get from following Jesus. You see the difference? An allegiance to Jesus, an allegiance to an outcome. See, he was all in, just like the rest of them. But he was all in for the process. He was all in for the outcome. He was all in as long as this thing actually happened, and he got out of it what he was supposed to get out of it. See, Judas did a a horrible thing. He is the villain here, but if we're honest, I think we could be a lot more like him than we want to think we are, right? See, I, I think we give ourselves a lot of credit. Do you know what I've given up to to follow Jesus? Do you know what I could be if, if, if I wasn't living the way Jesus wants me to live? Judas could have said that. Yeah, but I've been so faithful. I come to church every week. I've been doing this for years. Judas could have said that. Do you, did, have you seen what I've done for the kingdom? I've been on mission trips and I, and I serve at the church. Judas could have said that. Those weren't the things that separated the others from Judas. See, we we give ourselves a lot of credit, but in reality, our allegiance sometimes is to something other than Jesus himself. Sometimes I think that we get it twisted. We're following Jesus, but why? Judas was following Jesus, but, but why? Is it because Jesus deserves my allegiance, or is it because... I'm supposed to get something out of this deal? Is it because I have expectations that if I live my life the way Jesus wants, if I follow him, I'm going to get this and this and this out of it? And here's how I can tell that this happens, and I think it's a lot more common than we want to say it is. When people walk away from the church, they walk away for just a couple reasons. And one of them is, you remember that point where, where Judas asks, what are you willing to give me if I betray him? See, I don't think any one of us would say, 
What are you willing to give me to sell the Son of God? But we would say, what else is on the table? Is there any other way for me to get what I want? Is there, is there any other way for, for me to enjoy this life, my expectations, the things that I want? And the world is going to give you lots of offers. There are lots of ways to be happy. There are lots of ways to be satisfied, if, if nothing else, just in the moment, right? There are things to chase that aren't Jesus. And sometimes people walk away because they think they found a better deal. Or... Something happened that wasn't supposed to in their life. Or something that was supposed to happen didn't. Both of those are symptoms that Jesus isn't Lord. Right? Because if if there's anything better on the table, then you don't understand who he is. And if you have some expectation that if it doesn't work out, I'm out of here, he's not Lord. See, if if Jesus is only Lord when things go the way they should, he isn't. Period. See, I I had this story. I want to share with you guys a story that I have shared before. I got to ride in a car with a guy because of work. We we had to drive to Delta together. And so um, I was fresh out of Bible college, and I was going to get him for Jesus right? Like, I'm like, oh, I got an hour alone with a guy. I'm going to get him. And so I'm talking to him about Jesus. Well, he's an atheist. And so he's, he's arguing with me, and he's got some pretty good arguments here or there, but Bible college, right? And so I'm like, I'm breaking them all down. I'm winning the argument, okay? Everybody thinks they win, right? We get like five minutes to where we're going to be. And he goes, I can't believe in a, a God because my wife was raped and murdered. What? What have we been spending the last hour talking about all these arguments for? That's the reason. He had an expectation that like, if if God is good, if I follow him, then, then bad things won't happen to me or the people that I love. Right? You all know somebody like that. Or you are somebody like that. And if, here's the problem. If, if you're around Jesus long enough, he will either become Lord or he will become a problem. And we see that in this story. For the Pharisees, they couldn't handle it anymore. Jesus was becoming a problem because they wouldn't let him be Lord. And for the crowds, he comes into town and he's king but he's not Lord. And so when he's flipping over the the money changers tables in in the temple and he's driving people out and he's telling them how ridiculous this religious system is that it's so far off track, he becomes a problem and they're yelling, crucify him. And for Judas, because he wouldn't make him Lord, he became a problem. And look at what it did to Judas. Judas. You see, the difference between rabbi and Lord was enough to drive Judas and Jesus apart. Jesus went one way, and Judas went another way, and Judas never got back to where he was with Jesus. Let's finish the story. The slide's going to say Matthew 26. It's actually Matthew 27, verse 1. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans to have Jesus executed. So they bound him led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. First trial's over. He's headed to the second one. 
when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money bag into the temple and left, and he went away and hanged himself. Judas never got back to Jesus. The difference was simply rabbi versus Lord. And it separated the two of them. And here's what's, what's crazy. I want to tell you guys about the heart of, of my Jesus. Okay, here's what I know about Jesus. I know that Paul killed disciples of Jesus, that he went around threatening the bride of Christ, the church, that he was trying to stop the very movement that we are now a part of. And yet, when Jesus encountered him, he said, if you'll make me Lord, I could do amazing things with you, Paul. And Peter, Peter, right after Judas betrayed him, Peter denied him three times and left the scene, ran away scared to be associated with Jesus. And yet when he sees him again, Jesus restores him and and does amazing things with Peter, grows the church because of Peter's sermons early on, right? And and Jesus even washed Judas' feet knowing what he was going to use those feet to go do. I think Jesus loved Judas. And I think Jesus would have restored Judas. That's just me. That's not a, a theological thing. That's I think, I think that Jesus would have restored Judas, but, but he knew what Judas's problem was when he said, woe to that man that betrays me. It would be better if he was never born because he knew for Judas, Jesus wasn't Lord. His allegiance was to an outcome and not to him. And so where was he going to turn when the dust settled? He couldn't come back to Jesus because Jesus wasn't Lord. It it didn't even make sense to him. The deed was done, and his life was over. And so if if nothing else, I want you guys to catch this, that it is possible to be that close to Jesus and still be pulled off course by our own agendas and our own expectations. If Judas could walk with Jesus, could eat with Jesus, could touch him, could listen to him, and he can get there, Are we safe? If Judas could be that close to Jesus and not treat him like Lord, can't we? See, Judas was the bad guy. But I could be the bad guy. You could be the bad guy. Not that we're going to go have Jesus arrested for money, right? But there is evil in all of us. There is a villain in each of us that wants to know what do I get out of this? Every one of us has expectations, agendas. There are things that we hold so tightly that it makes me wonder, is Jesus Lord? Things like, um, when when am I going to be important in church? When are they going to notice me? My kids had better turn out right. I'm following Jesus. I, I do this whole Bible thing with them. They better be okay. How come my wife isn't like his wife? I'm a good Christian, right? We, we tithe every week. How come we're going through a bankruptcy? 
See, we all have expectations. And for you, there's probably something I couldn't even, I couldn't even list because you know what it is. But there's two types of people here. There are people that need to make Jesus Lord for the first time. And if you were here last week, Tim talked about this problem that a lot of people think that Jesus was a good teacher. That I will, I'll take the things that he said, and, and like the good lessons, but I'm not quite sure about the whole Lord thing. Look at the company you'd be keeping if you just thought of him as a good teacher. Judas thought of him as a good teacher. It's not an option for us. And for you, maybe you need to do that for the first time today. Or you're here and you need to treat him like Lord again and again and again. So this has to be a daily heart check. Who is Jesus to me today? Is he a teacher? Do I like to come to church so that I can learn some things? Is he the giver of life's good things? Like if I just follow this moral structure that Jesus set out, then my life will be okay. Is he my friend? Is he the name attached to a cultural movement that I like being a part of? Or is he Lord in my life today? Let me help you sort that out. Is there anything that's off limits in your life for him? Is there anything that he's not allowed to have access to? He's not allowed to tell you what to do with. He's not allowed to challenge that thought you have, that, that habit that you have. Is there anything off limits? Is there anything that he had better do for you? Or the deal's off. Like, I've put in all of this investment. This better be the result. Can he change direction in your life? Can he have you thinking that you're going one way and then one day just tap you on the shoulder and say, nope, we're going that way. Is that allowed? Is there anything that he can't take away? Is he allowed to add stuff to your plate? Or are you, no, I'm good. Where I serve, what I do, this is enough for me. Can he interrupt your plans? Because a Lord can do whatever he wants. See, that's what it means when he's Lord. It means his agenda over my agenda. His agenda over mine. That's what it looks like to make Jesus Lord. doesn't mean that I don't have expectations or plans. It means that they fall underneath his. And so if his are different, his wins every time. And you see, none of the disciples, none of the other 11 knew what was around the corner. Jesus' death was just the beginning Right? And God would go on to use them for incredible things, incredible ways for the kingdom of God because they made him Lord. Not because they understood everything, not because they liked everything, but because he was Lord. You bow your heads, I'm going to pray with you guys real quick. Heavenly Father, um, you, you are Lord. Would you help us treat you like that? Would you help us, um, would, you, would your spirit in us change us to, to lay down our expectations, to lay down our agendas, and, and to, to focus on yours? What do you want to do? We trust you, not because of what we get out of it, but because you deserve our trust, period. I pray for my friends here today that, that they would leave here with a renewed sense of, of who you are,
and that their life would be different because of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.